I'm Bradley Rolfe. And I'm Sabrina Ortiz. And we're Grown Up Theater Kids. Colin isn't here to co-host today because he's deep in revisions and orchestrations on our upcoming production of his original musical, Forgotonia. We are also in the middle of editing our third feature episode, which we're really excited about, and we'll be releasing it once it's done. But today we've decided to share some of our recent thoughts on the state of theater and and our lives. So, Sabrina, you want to take it away? At any point in my life, when asked the question, what's your biggest fear? I've almost always had the same answer. Wasted potential. Now, I'm not talking about failure. I got over my fear of failure a while ago. No, what I fear is waking up one day and realizing that I could have done so much more. Realizing that I had the ability to move mountains, but I only ever tried pushing pebbles. In the midst of a global pandemic, that fear has hit me harder than I ever thought it would. If you haven't heard my voice before, hi, my name is Sabrina Ortiz and I'm a musical theater major. Currently, I'm recording this in my on-campus apartment, and let me tell you, I genuinely did not expect to be back here this soon. At the time of recording this, there have been 6.22 million confirmed COVID cases in the United States and 188,000 deaths. I don't know who thought it would be a good idea to put a bunch of students on campus with some loose guidelines and call it a safe plan, but, um pop off, I guess. Aside from all the obvious issues of being back on campus as a regular student, as I mentioned earlier, your girl is a musical theater major. My entire major is encompassed by the idea of collaborative in-person work, and so as you can imagine, this semester looks, um, well, different to say the least. Currently, I'm taking part in three out of four productions that are happening this semester, two of which are being performed online, and the other two are being performed in outdoor locations. For the two online plays that I'm a part of, we don't meet in person at all. Every meeting is taking place with a computer screen in between us, and while these are the two shows that I feel the most safe participating in, something just seems to be missing. The interactions that we have are all a bit delayed. Someone will crack a joke in a production meeting, and while you can see people laughing, you can't hear a single chuckle. Our mute buttons almost seem like an extra barrier for speaking up about the risky ideas we have for a show. People turn off their cameras, and it feels like you're pitching your concepts to no one at all. It's safe, but it's strange. On the other hand, the in-person show I'm a part of is a musical theater review slash dance concert. Our production meetings are still over Zoom, but our rehearsals are in person, which I thought would bring some semblance of normalcy to the process, but stepping into a rehearsal room with 10-foot boxes taped out for each dancer seems like I'm in some Wattpad theater dystopian novel. Our songs are no longer live because, you know, it's already pretty hard understanding regular conversation through a mask, so I can't imagine what a bunch of singing voices would sound like through them. For the most part, I feel safe. We wear masks, we keep our distance, we clear out the rehearsal room for 30 minutes for airflow purposes, but 
There's always a little voice in my head reminding me that when this pandemic was not nearly this bad, I went into self-isolation. I took only the necessary risks, like going to the grocery store or taking out the trash, and now here I am in a room with 13 other people dancing and laughing and taking a not-so-necessary risk. And why? Well, remember earlier that little fear that I mentioned? Wasted potential? Yeah, well, she has not been kind to me since March. Ever since everything closed down and all the shows I was a part of were canceled, she's been tap-tapping on my shoulder. <laughs> Even when I started this internship, there she was, repeating the thing that I feared the most. You aren't doing enough. You're wasting your potential. So, when I was given the opportunity to grow and dance, something that I have been striving to do for a long time, I took it. I traded one fear for another. I don't mean for this to sound like I'm not still taking this pandemic seriously, because I am. I wear my mask everywhere, I wash my hands constantly, I sanitize everything, I even shout wear your mask while walking around campus. I, I was just searching for a way not to feel like I was wasting my life away again. So here I am, in this weird stage of theater somewhere in between the theater I once knew and the theater that emerged earlier this year. A state of limbo, of not knowing what's going to happen next, of not knowing if I'm always going to be choosing what kind of box I would like to create art in. The one on the screen, or the one taped out on the floor. Right now, things change so quickly. Since you wrote that essay, has anything changed about your situation or perspectives of life on campus? I mean, if I'm being 100% honest in that essay, I talk about being kind of scared. And I'm really scared at this point because although I'm being as safe as possible, that's not true for everybody else on campus. And Warrensburg, where my campus is located, is like number five or number four of most rapidly growing COVID cases, even though we don't have a lot. It's just that we didn't have basically any. And then we got to like 88 and then it just keeps going up. So it's nerve wracking. And sometimes I wonder if taking the risk of doing shows and taking the risk of going to class is even worth it. I stick by everything I said. Like the reason I take the risk is because it's better for my mental health to be around people. And when this first started, I isolated myself and it was really bad for me. But I'm starting to wonder what what health I need to put first again, you know? Education and theater are both industries that either do require or we've told ourselves require gathering in person, in groups. And 
professional theater has, for the most part, taken time off. And I know that, especially for parents of younger children, school is relied on as de facto child care. But I did have the thought, like, well, if theater could just take time off, could education just take time off? What would we lose if every student in America got held back a year? Yeah, I was thinking about that as well, because especially for university, I honestly think they should have just been like, hey, we're not having school this year. I mean, I know it would be hard for them because that's a year without money, but I think the government should provide money to public universities, like bailouts, so that students aren't forced to go back to school because for a lot of students like one of the main reasons I went back to school is because I got a very large scholarship this year that I will only be offered once and it makes it so I don't have to go into far as much debt as I would if I didn't take this scholarship so I wouldn't get that scholarship if I decided not to go this year and I know that's what it's like for a lot of students like there's Schools still playing sports and their sports teams are being forced to play because a lot of them are on scholarship. And a lot of those people are people of color because they that's the way they are affording to go to school. And now that's why on college campuses, a lot more people of color are being affected by the virus because a lot more people of color do work study and do all of the other things that that put us at risk because systemic racism makes it so it's harder for people of color to afford college. But back to what I was saying earlier, I agree. My little brother is going into his first year of high school and he has to sit at a, in front of a computer all day. And there's some students who are going in person, but he didn't feel safe doing so, which I 100% agree with, but he's not learning great. Asking students to sit in front of a computer screen for eight hours a day, one, is bad for their health, and two, is just insane. I did take a break. Take a break. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, re- let's, let's, let's take a break and reset the world. How about that? Yeah, I agree. So last time you guys did an essay episode, you and Colin played a rapid fire reaction game on various topics in theater. And this time I wanted to pick out the topics for you guys. Great. So Colin and I recorded this earlier. You gave us each three topics for each other. So you gave me Colin's topics. You gave Colin my topics. So we didn't know them going in and, uh, and we recorded it. Uh, A note for this segment Colin and I recorded on a Friday night, and across the street uh, in the parking lot of the Grandel, there was a rad jazz concert. There might be some background noise, but here it is. It's hot take lightning round. You ready? I'm ready. Steampunk Shakespeare. Steampunk Shakespeare. Steampunk um, Shakespeare. Wow. I want to start with generally... Shakespeare set in random weird other times. I think it's cool, but just like everything, it has to be cool to be cool. It has to be well done to be cool. The concept in and of itself doesn't make it valuable. So steampunk, I really like steampunk as an aesthetic. 
I think the anachronisms going on in steampunk are cool. I'm I'm a fan. I'm not like into steampunk, but I was too young to know that Wild Wild West wasn't a good movie when it came out and I enjoyed it. Yes, I think steampunk Shakespeare work. I think implicit in that should be what's a Shakespearean story that would work best as steampunk or that I would most want to see as steampunk. I feel like The Tempest is the obvious one. Why is that? Because steampunk is so often like adventure and The Tempest is adventure. Is steampunk often adventure? I feel like it's just like a clock exploded. <laughs> that's what's that's the uh, that's steampunk. But it's it's but it's Oh no, I got the the clock vomited on me. <laughs> but it's but it's you know, it's this when you get a, an uprising technocracy uh, never heard that word. Well, you've heard about you've heard about a technocrat. Yeah, I guess. So yeah. I feel like that that needs an adventurous story. Like a political story would be like what like what would steampunk add to Julius Caesar? That he'd look like a clock exploded all over him. It'd be cool. Yeah, but that only on the aesthetic. Where would where would it actually support the story? That's fair. I guess all's well that ends well would be good too because we go to like a thousand different cities. Yeah, Colin, tell us about your hot take on Star Kid. I think they're geniuses. I can't say enough about them. I think that they will be seen by history as being the godfathers of how we radically shifted accessibility in musical theater. I am not a fan of many of their shows. I'm going to say it. It's not my brand of comedy. I do like some of their stuff. I do like Oregon Trail. I, I really like that show. However, the idea that you can watch a musical that's that high quality with that high quality of actor in it um, with that high quality of storytelling, like just because I don't really prefer that style of comedy doesn't make them not good shows because they are like all of them full stop, like are, are high quality musicals with great storytelling that very well could be off Broadway. But what they chose to do instead, and I bet you, I don't know this for a fact, but I bet you that they've been approached to be to be put on some quote unquote larger stage. But like what they've done is they've like usurped the power. They've taken what could be an off-Broadway show where maybe, you know, like a hundred thousand people will see it. And instead they have, you know, 669,000 subscribers. Yeah. And their shows, for instance, the guy who didn't like musicals, which came out a year ago is 4 million views. So they've usurped, they've usurped the power and also they're giving it away for free. That's incredible. Anybody with an internet connection can see a high quality musical uh, for nothing. I freaking love it. Not to mention a very Potter musical. Let me see. Six, almost 17 million views well, yeah. since 2009. But like no Broadway show sells 17 million tickets by, by like a, a, by a exponential amount. So yeah, go star kid, like change the world, man. Jukebox musicals. Jukebox musicals. Hot garbage. No, just kidding. But actually, most of the time, um, I have not seen some of the highest rated and most beloved jukebox musicals. I have not seen Jersey Boys, not seen Million Dollar Quartet. I think that as a concept on the whole, there's nothing wrong inherently with a jukebox musical. However, and this comes to kind of my same deal with adaptations broadly is translating it from one form to another, because that's what a jukebox musical at its heart 
is an adaptation of some other of some other medium into the sphere of musical theater and there are so many more opportunities to make mistakes i want a full cohesive story from my musical theater i want you know something deeply human maybe if i went into a jukebox musical thinking of it like it's a review i would like it better but then at that point why not just make it a review why not just make it a song and dance show you've decided to take these songs out of their original context and i've never felt a jukebox musical hit the same way as an original book musical uh cool cool uh next question next question all right rap musical theater it is the first time since the 60s if not before that musical theater has aligned with a popular genre outside of musical theater i think it does so much to bring non-musical theater people into the fold I think it's the best possible thing there is for outreach as far as getting new people into musical theater that there possibly can be. I happen to like rap a lot. In the Heights was like a life-changing experience for me. The Hamilton mixtape album, like where all the artists did it, that was the first time that musical theater music has been broadcast on the radio since like Barbara Streisand. Think about that. Like it's been... 40 years plus, maybe, since like Sendin' the Clowns was on the radio, you know, in the 80s. I mean, it was 40s. Sendin' the Clowns was like one of those last songs. Like everybody remembers that for being Barbara Streisand, not for being Sondheim. And rightfully so. But like the fact that Barbara Streisand made that song super famous was like made a little night music famous and then brought people into musical theater. Rap musical theater, full stop, is like doing that. And Lin-Manuel Miranda almost single-handedly is doing that. The next Broadway show to have a hip-hop score, people will say, wow, they're just trying to imitate Hamilton. It's already happened. Oh, it has? Um, Well, actually, it happened before Hamilton, and it combines uh, both of our topics that we just got. Uh, The horrible, horrible musical, Holla If You Hear Me. Um, I don't know it. It didn't last very long. But it was Uh, on Broadway? It was on Broadway. It was the Tupac musical, and Mm -hmm. they had such great, like, subject material, and they, and they, they did subject matter. And they did, I mean, and, and they did Tupac's music, which is like great storytelling yeah, yeah. in its own right. And they managed to somehow just botch it. And they had a great cast and everything. It was just like the show itself was really bad. One of my good friends uh, went to see it on Broadway and like said it was the biggest waste of $600 that oh, he's ever man. spent. Oh, man. He got like front row seats. He's like, this is like huge yeah. Tupac fan. Um, yeah, it was, it was, it was, a, it was a lot. Um, it, I, I don't know how long it lasted on Broadway, but it was not very long. Anyway, rap musicals. I love them. They're here to stay, um, and I'm looking forward to 30 years from now there being EDM musicals or whatever is next in the, in the pipeline of, of Broadway being late to the party. <laughs> I mean, is an EDM musical just called the Blue Man Group? No. Tell me the story of a Blue Man Group concert. There's a story, Colin, but you just you live it, man. You okay. experience it. You're one with everybody in that room. Bradley, I don't do drugs. <laughs> soliloquies soliloquies i don't have a problem with it if it functions well uh i think i'm it's i'm, I'm sorry i don't have a take Bradley, on Bradley, how can you not have a take on this like it is specifically a thing that like we both as pretentious writer people do we just talk at people yeah 
soliloquy to me is like the long shot in cinema. It's really phenomenal when it's done well, and when it's done expertly, you don't even notice. Um, and you can really screw it up if you have no idea what you're doing with it. So, if a show is written adequately, like, you know, showing its philosophy. Show don't tell, right? Right. If 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 a show is showing, not telling, why does it? Why does a soliloquy need to exist? Uh, because words are beautiful, and you can put words together in a soliloquy in ways that you can't in dialogue. And that's why I have a blog. 10 minute long dance breaks. Um, it depends where they're placed. Uh, I do love a good dance break. Uh, I don't write them very often. Traditionally, the 10 minute dance break, so to speak, you know, was reserved for the end of act one where, where there's like a huge ballet that two different actors come in and play avatars for the two leads. And, and they do this whole long thing that represents their love. And like, usually there's like a turn where some sort of event that spurs the action for act two happens within that ballet through some interpretive deal. More modern versions of the 10 minute dance break. The one that I can turn to is not 10 minutes long, not quite 10 minutes long. But uh, what you want from Legally Blonde, mm-hmm. one of the coolest um, dance breaks of all time. It it shows Elle's like ambition through the power of dance, like through the yeah. power of musical theater. And a ten minute dance break, when it's done well, propagates the idea that you can show anything through the power of musical theater. And that sounds like a joke when you say like through the power of musical theater, yeah. but. I, I, I mean that, you know, like I, I personally disagree with the idea that a musical has to be like one thing. Can you use the genre to communicate an idea in a, in a way that is more evocative or more profound or, or translates the message any better than it would through words? And I think that that is what makes a 10 minute dance break worth sitting there for 10 minutes for. I, it depends on the context, sure, but like, so if are we going to start calling this this segment? It depends on the context. Yeah. <laughs> um, call us. Call us. We don't really give hot takes. Col- we just Colin give... and Bradley's landscaping crew. We hedge everything. <laughs> Colin and Bradley's landscaping crew. <laughs> never been described as a late bloomer, or at least not to my face. And I think the main reason for that is that most people have the good sense to recognize that the phrase late bloomer is a poisoned euphemism. It seems designed to communicate that an individual is still valuable even if their skills and accomplishments are on the backside of a bell curve compared to their peers, but it still implies that the benchmark of comparison is the measure of worth. The phrase carries an unavoidably condescending and piteous connotation. I bring this up because while I've never heard this unintentionally harmful phrase lobbed my way, 
Sometimes I felt like it applies to me. Now, truly, I'm contented with where I am in my life. I've been successful at redefining and ignoring cultural benchmarks away, not falling into the trap of social comparison. However, there is one area of my life where I feel I am lagging behind, and that's my personal psychological pandemic response. At the outset of the outbreak, there was a sort of unified experience. We were all learning new language from sheltering to distancing to masking. We learned to focus our energies on new domestic skills while also learning not to shame ourselves for being less productive than we'd like. Because, hey, it's a pandemic. Life's not going to look normal right now. And in the early weeks, I found myself cooking more and scheduling virtual social hours, and I even cleaned my room. But while the world at large seemed shaken into this great upheaval, my individual rhythms did not feel immediately interrupted. Aside from making fewer and more disciplined trips to the grocery store, my day-to-day -day experience looked about the same for a while. I had the fortunate privilege of my employment being uninterrupted. I had the fortunate privilege of not having my schedule tied to the academic calendar. I had the fortunate privilege of not being directly responsible for anyone outside myself. And I had the fortunate privilege of being a particularly odd duck for whom change does not seem to affect the same as everyone else. Sometimes I just don't notice. But generally, faced with change, I neither stand firm and push back, nor do I nimbly adapt and reorient myself. I rather absorb some, let some pass by, and quietly adjust. So often my resilience is not in an ability to adapt, but in lacking a need to adapt. Facing my own psychological and emotional response to the pandemic was something that could wait. I could watch and weigh, bide my time before I have to react. In the meantime, I took full advantage of the permissions granted by a distanced home life. I gave myself permission to let the laundry pile up and to not wear shoes. I gave myself permission to buy comfort foods I normally wouldn't, like mac and cheese, and Cheez-Its, and American cheese. And I gave myself permission to watch lots and lots of television. Avatar The Last Airbender is an animated television show that was originally broadcast on Nickelodeon from 2005 to 2008. It is heavily inspired by the conventions of anime, and a key feature of the franchise is some characters have the supernatural ability to manipulate one of the four classic elements. These individuals are known as benders. The show takes place in a world divided into nations defined by their representative element. Water. Water. Earth. Fire. Fire. Air. Air. 
long ago, the four nations lived together in harmony. Then, everything changed when the Fire Nation attacked. Only the Avatar, master of all four elements, could stop them. But when the world needed him most, he vanished. Through licensing on its platform this summer, Netflix brought back Avatar and eventually its sequel series, The Legend of Korra. Many of my peers experienced this show when it first aired, but I did not. And now, thanks to my permission to binge, I blasted through the series like a badger mole through a secret tunnel. Avatar The Last Airbender is a show for children, but its characters encounter real-life themes and have to struggle and grow through them. The plot structure is simple, but heroes and villains alike encounter tough decisions and unanswerable questions. Desires, motivations, frustrations, all these things that drive conflict within relationships and within ourselves are tackled with an open hand, allowing the fictional characters to react with nuance and uncertainty. This handling of humanity is one of the reasons the show has endured and is so beloved, and why devotees so easily have an Avatar quote or meme to parallel nearly any real-world situation. I recently completed watching the sequel series, The Legend of Korra, and while pacing and some character attitudes are different, it occurs within the same world of Avatar and has the same penchant for dealing with complex themes in a nuanced way. One that stuck with me was the experience of loss and grief. Most of the time when we discuss loss and grief, particularly in a fictional narrative, we encounter it in terms of the death of a loved one. While this type of loss remains painful, as a society we are relatively adept at navigating the conversation around someone being gone forever. We can carry them in our memories, but we learn to live without them. The grief is something we work through to get over. The loss is something we learn to let go of. Within the series of The Legend of Korra, without giving too much away, there are a few story arcs where a key character experiences a change in their abilities, whether it's a spiritual connection or related to their bending. In this world, if you're a firebender or an earthbender, a waterbender or an airbender, it's your identity. So if you lose the capability to perform in this mode, you lose a piece of you. While the grief of death is painful, it is external. You learn to live without someone else. When we lose an ability we have, we have to learn to live without a part of ourself. This is a different type of loss. A different type of grief. This is an active, ongoing loss. And connecting through the character's experience of this loss in the show 
has given me an insight into the loss that performers are dealing with right now. We haven't lost a pet we can replace. We haven't lost a free time activity we can fill with something else. We are missing a part of ourselves, and we don't know if or when we'll get it back. And if or when we do, we don't know if it will be the same. Will we be able to connect the way we once did, or will a shard be lost forever? Colin and I wrote some reflections two months ago, and in mine, I defiantly stated that losing the ability to produce theater didn't feel like a true loss to me, that I didn't feel the loss on a visceral level, that loss on a visceral level because i've been able to see it not I've as a loss but as something but deferred something deferred heck i've waited for things before that's something i know how to do no big deal right maybe i wasn't being honest or maybe i just hadn't yet watched the right tv show to help me articulate my experience but either way i was wrong or maybe I wasn't wrong, per se, at the time, but rather my grief was deferred. Maybe I'm just a bit of a late bloomer in feeling the loss. So, how do we live with the loss? How do I forge ahead when part of me feels gone? I might be asking questions too big for me to answer. And maybe too big for the creators of Avatar to answer. And it's tempting to look to the show for answers. The singular focus of a fictional hero on their quest is an appealing model. But the hero's journey is a model for a narrative not a model on how to live. Come on, Bradley. Don't take your audience down this path without a way out. What's the big lesson? How now should we go on living? What's the solution to our grief? Don't you at least have some witty adage to leave us with? Oh, uh, I don't know. I had a feel-goody turn of phrase, but, but what if it's just feel-good for feel-good's sake? And I'm not sure if I have the authority to proclaim it as any great wisdom, but the more I dwell on it, more I think that's the approach I'm going to run with, so if it's good enough for me. We can't know how this is going to end, or where we're going to end up, but the best path to take is the one we take together one we take together
Grown Up Theater Kids is a production of Fly North Theatricals, hosted by me, Bradley Rolfe. And me, Sabrina Ortiz. Recorded in our Studio B in the beautiful Grand Center Arts District in St. Louis, Missouri, in residence with the Kranzberg Arts Foundation. With portions recorded in my apartment on the beautiful UCM campus in Warrensburg, Missouri. For more content, subscribe to our YouTube channel. And for exclusive content, consider becoming a patron on Patreon. The music in today's episode was performed, arranged, and largely composed by my good friend, Colin Healy. And we wouldn't exist without our supporters and audience. So thanks for everything. That includes listening.